You're listening to All Things Video, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the past and charting the future of the online video ecosystem. You're listening to All Things Video. I'm your host, James Creech, and today's guest is Phil Ranta, COO at Wormhole Labs. Phil, welcome back to the show. James, great to see you again. Yeah, man, this is a, a special occasion that you are the first repeat guest on All Things Video in its tenured uh, six-year history. So I am honored to be a repeat guest. A lot's happened in that time, so I Big think we time. should check back more often. Yeah. TikTok was, wasn't even a thing at that time. That's right. I would encourage people who aren't familiar to go back. Listen, you were so kind back when podcasts were just a twinkle in the eye for a lot of folks. It was like, hey, Phil, can I have you on this thing called a podcast? And of course, you had been doing a podcast at the time, so you're like, yeah, I'd love to. And, you and it was you know, my third episode out of the gate, so I had a lot to learn, but... Um, here we are five plus years later. And, and now uh, doing it over Zoom, which is kind of how podcasts go these days. So. Yes, you know, for better or for worse. I would wish, yep. you know, that we could be in person, but, you know, give it a few more months. Someday, or so someday. We'll make it happen. Well, um, a lot, as we've, we've, we've touched on, has happened since that time. So, you know, catch people up, just the quick synopsis of your background and your intervening work at Mob Crush, Facebook Gaming, and now Wormhole Labs. I want people to get a taste of who you are. Yeah, very quick overview. So I've been in digital content for about 15 years. Um, I started on the creative side. I was a comedian and content creator from 2005 to about 2010. I ran production divisions for mobile phone content house. I had my own show. I had my own YouTube channel. Then in 2012, I became the first head of network over at Fullscreen, um, built that to a successful exit, and then became CEO over at Studio 71, working with influencers and influencer marketing. Um, and then we exited that company successfully, went from there to Mob Crush, where I was doing ad tech for live streams. I fell madly in love with live video. And then I went to Facebook, where I ran their gaming creators division. Um, and now I'm the chief operating officer at Wormhole, where we're building metaverse tech, very futuristic stuff. And I love it. So let's dig into that because, you know, some people still aren't quite familiar with what is the metaverse? What does that mean? Right. And it's like you said, this future tech applications for interactive experiences in AR, VR, uh, you know, reality environments. So tell us a little bit more about the metaverse. Yeah. So the idea of a metaverse is that someday we're all going to be able to explore virtual worlds as avatars to meet, chat, shop, play. We're going to be able to outfit our avatars however we want. And that's going to be a primary mode of communication. And it's already kind of happening, especially since last time we talked. If you look at what's happening in Fortnite and Minecraft and Roblox and even Among Us, like, People are used to avatar to avatar communication. The sales of digital goods have gone through the roof. Snapchat is starting to do partnerships with Gucci for how you dress up your Bitmoji. So we're already starting to see kind of teases of the metaverse here and there, but it's still very, very new and nobody's owned the space. It's kind of disparate across a lot of different ways. Facebook launched Facebook Horizon, but it's all virtual world and floating heads. And everyone's kind of trying to figure out where they fit. So what we're doing over at Wormholes, we're building the first metaverse for the real world. Now, what that means in action is people can hold up their phones, spin around, that creates an environment, what we call a smart bubble, that's full of all this ambient data like social media posts and shoppable links and avatars and all that other stuff. All of that builds together into a grid, so it kind of encompasses the whole world in these smart bubbles. And then you can navigate those smart bubbles as avatars too. Watch live videos, see social media in real time, uh, fall in love with a Parisian at the Eiffel Tower, go ask a New Yorker what their favorite pizza is. And all of this is building to this idea of how can we make the metaverse function in a way that it has real world effects instead of fantasy world effects? And does this 
offer the potential to bring us closer to live experiences. So what I'm thinking of is, you know, today's the Super Bowl, right? If, if yeah. I wanted to feel like I was there, but I'm not going to, you know, shell out, you know, all the money and risk, you know, going to the stadium this year, can I, can I be there or have the experience of being there through the metaverse? You exactly got it. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's really what we were running towards. The problem we're trying to solve is if you want to see Super Bowl stuff on Twitter or Instagram, you have to find the right hashtag. And then half that hashtag are going to be people who are camping on that hashtag to try to sell their online courses, or they're not really there, right? If I want to see just stuff from people that are there, there's only one mass market solution, and that's Snap Maps. And nobody really uses Snap Maps. There's like privacy concerns and all of that other stuff, just because most people use Snapchat as a messaging app, so they don't really want to put themselves out in that way. So we're, we're trying to solve for that by saying, well, you can just wormhole or teleport your avatar into the stadium. You can see who's actually there because their avatars show up differently than people who are wormholing in. And then you can actually talk to someone on the 50 yard line, or you could view live video feeds directly from the stadium. So it's just a different way to discover, consume and create content. Amazing. And awesome applications for live video, which as yeah. we've touched on in the past five years has exploded, right? We didn't have yeah. all the activity on Twitch. We didn't have, you know, the live streaming rush quite yet on, you know, YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, et cetera. So, you know, I'm curious where you see live going, particularly in light of the recent, you know, Kaisho IPO. Yeah. It seems like we're on the precipice of even more live, live streaming heading our way. Yeah, I mean, the, the pandemic has been horrible, 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 but it has accelerated a lot of digital markets, right? So if you look at the acceleration of e-commerce adoption, the acceleration of live video creation and consumption, the acceleration of gaming and in-game purchases, like McKinsey came out with a report saying e-commerce has accelerated five years because of the pandemic. So we're in this really interesting time where a lot of us who are front lines of digital, like I know you read the trades every day, I read the trades every day, we're looking for those hockey sticking markets, but you can't plan for something like a pandemic. So all of a sudden, everybody's scrambling and going, oh my God, new normals are being created every day. How do I not get left behind? Because in the digital world, that happens very easily. And live video adoption, and especially shopping and live video is one of those things that has started occurring more, right? So Everyone's trying to find their solution. Our solution over at Wormhole is the world is already a content and commerce rich place, right? You walk down the Third Street Promenade Santa Monica, you're going to be shopping those stores, right? And just like the real world, if your avatar is walking down there, you're going to want the same experience. So we built in shoppable live video and the ability to tap on a storefront and buy things from there as a day one experience. But what really excites me about a lot of that stuff is what's been happening in China with Singles Day and pushing $65 billion in sales through user-generated content and live streams. Like that's, to me, that just screams like QVC is coming back. It's user-generated. People want it. And it's kind of like the next way people can have an Amazon-like experience where they're not just searching and buying, but actually shopping again which is kind of a fun social experience, or it used to be. Yeah. It's been less so lately. It feels like retail has to change. And right. uh, you know, some of these digital players are pushing that forward, particularly Amazon Live, right? It seems like more yeah. and more influencers are, are looking towards Amazon Live as a new way to engage their audience and then drive commerce. Yeah, Amazon Live is interesting. It's still, I mean, even if you go to the top, top streams on Amazon Live, you're still seeing 200, 300 concurrence. Like it's still not explosive. But some of the revenue numbers I've heard from people, especially people who are, I guess, quote unquote, nobodies, right? They're not influencers. They're like me, right? They're just like going live. And there's people pulling in hundreds or thousands of dollars an hour. 
just like saying, hey, I really enjoy this computer monitor. It's for sale right there. You click below and buy it. I like the color resolution. I like the parabolic screen. And then they'll do five or 10 purchases and that equates to a hundred bucks, right? And that's really meaningful, especially when you compare it to the kind of revenue you drive through most live video, which is zero or something like Twitch where you have to depend on user pay where they're getting very little in return most of the time. Yeah. One of the questions I wanted to ask you today was, you know, your thoughts on what you call or have labeled the great platform unbundling, right? You've, you've yeah. written about this a little bit. You've, you've been thinking and talking about this for a while. What do you see happening in the social media landscape? Yeah, it's fascinating, right? Because we, we in social media 1.0, arguably maybe 2.0, possibly 3.0, uh, we've seen that there's still a lot of kind of asynchronous posting and feeds type content, right? And these are all mass market, like YouTube, Facebook, Twitter. It's not like I'm going for this kind of enthusiast or that. Like Facebook started on college campuses, but very quickly was just like, everyone's grandma's on it now. And then it was Facebook, right? Um, so I think that a lot of people got exhausted by that and were kind of looking for their new ground. Uh, TikTok kind of became that Gen Z or Gen Alpha solution. And then a lot of older people started getting onto it. And I think that people are finally now saying, I've had it. And they're moving to two different kinds of things. One is platforms that are specifically for one type of creator. And I even point to things like 8chan for that, right? Even though 8chan is one of those things where it's like, let's not talk about it. Or for that matter, like stuff like Pornhub, right? Like we, nobody wants to talk about how successful these places are. But the reason why they're successful is because they're kind of gated communities looking for one thing. One of them is they're looking for like QAnon or free speech or however you want to look at it, right? Like unmoderated, uncensored speech. The other one they're looking for, like just a safe place to watch pornography, right? Likewise, there's going to be a lot of dark social that starts popping up where it's going to be like, this is the place for Wall Street bets on Reddit, where we're going to go and mess with the stock market. And this is a WhatsApp group that's just going to be for super tech enthusiasts. And we're all just going to chat. And these kind of dark social environments, I consider to be kind of this unbundling from mass market to niche market. And then as we see from every market where you unbundle and bundle again and unbundle and bundle again, someone will come up with a super aggregator of all these sports enthusiast unbundled platforms. And then that's going to become another bundled platform that'll become mass market. So it's an exciting time for people who are looking at new technologies because there's a chance for platforms to actually break out again. They just have to look niche and they have to look at ways that they can service smaller groups like Clubhouse did. Yeah. So there's so much here that I want to help unpack. Um, the first thing is, it feels like the 1.0, 2.0, whatever you want to call it, platforms, the YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, were primarily broadcast, right? It's public yeah. distribution of my waking thoughts. So here mm -hmm. you are, anyone who's interested, come check out my content. Whereas yeah. something like Clubhouse, you know, has at least launched with this uh, idea of scarcity, this, um, you know, invite only in, in, at the beginning. Um, or things like OnlyFans or community emphasizing these smaller niches of yeah. fandom, uh, which might not stay that way, right? Because you might, to your point, as you get economies of scale, uh, it, it loses the cool factor and there's mm -hmm. pushes to embrace these other forms of monetization. So that's maybe kind of the first piece to kind of think this through. The yeah. second piece is um, the economics, right? The economic imperatives and incentives of these platforms as they grow. We saw this, I mean, Facebook is the, the case study, right? Yeah. Facebook reaches a third of the internet now. And so over time, your organic reach as a Facebook creator, publisher, brand 
decreases significantly and becomes much more pay to play. I think we're now seeing signs of this on Instagram as Facebook adapts the playbook. Sure. And, uh, you know, and, and I think you probably face those similar forces as a TikTok, as, you know, another emerging platform, as you maybe start reaching scale and you're trying to, you know, drive the street, you want investors to, to see the potential for advertising and, and audience aggregation. Yeah, it's interesting because there's always been this kind of battle in social media. And I remember even talking, having this conversation in the MySpace days, like is social media a town square or is it a living room, right? And at Facebook, even the messaging has been going back and forth between those things. Mm. But I feel like it's now been a town square for far too long. And people are sick of it being the town square because it's starting to do things like mess with politics and uh, make people believe conspiracy theories. Like there's a lot of bad things about town squares because once you learn how to game a platform, any message you want, you can get out there. And it's got this illusion of being trusted because it's a lot of like friends and family that are sharing things. But then it was a share of a share of a share of a share and who knows where it came from, right? The living room is coming back into vogue. And what I like to say is it's not even the living room anymore. It's like the bedroom or the confessional booth, right? Like it's getting smaller and smaller. And I think Reddit has kind of shown us the way because from day one, they've had a town square, which is their front page. They've had their subreddits, which are like the living rooms. And then they've had these really, really niche communities that start to feel like more like the confessionals, right? Where it's like subreddits of subreddits where it's just like, I am somebody who loves this one character from this one video game from 1985 and nothing will change my mind. And I talk on it all day and it's just about this one thing, right? Well, now there's we're starting also, to see more of that. I've also noticed a culture on Reddit of people who have their public identity. So they post and, you know, it's tied to a real identity. It's their name and they, they post frequently, but then they'll post pseudo anonymously, right? Under another account in cases where they want to pr protect their identity or express, you know, alternative uh, opinions perhaps. So there's yeah. kind of this competing notion. There's the notion of speech, right? And there's the difference between the living room and the town square. And yeah. then there's this notion of identity and what is your public identity versus personal identity. And we are reckoning with this in such a big way right now. I mean, the, the 2020 political cycle stress tested this more than anything. Where yeah. do you think we land on these issues of speech and of identity? I think that there's, we're always gonna move towards people being able to identify their identity the way they want to. I think Facebook's making a huge mistake. And I think they've been making a huge mistake since day one of kind of forcing real names and trying to find people who aren't using their real names and banning them. It's just not how the internet functions. And I get it like you want accountability, but the internet is still a semi-anonymous place. I mean, digital modes of communication have always been that way, right? Like the telephone, you don't know who's on the other line. And as soon as caller ID came in, so did the star 67. And that like, you know, like there's always gonna be a desire for some anonymity. Um, most of us who work in digital even do the same thing. I've always had two Twitter handles. I've had at Phil Ranta and then I have my other one, right? And as we saw, who was it? There was one politician who had a second Twitter handle, Mitt Romney. There was a story that broke about how he would have a second Twitter handle to defend himself against people who were like <laughs> bad talking him. Then That's finally great. he admitted that it was him. But But there's a lot of people who do that, right? Because like, even though there's a lot of issues with anonymity, it's something that like we have to reckon with on a policy basis or even on a legislative basis, right? Like Facebook begs the government to start coming up with actual national policy around social media so that they're not blamed for everything. And the response is, we should break you up. And they're like, no, just 
tell us what laws we have to abide by, but everyone's afraid to, because it's way too complicated. So, you know, I think that anonymity is going to be part of the internet forever, whether we like it or not. And now we have to figure out what we do with that, right? How do we weed out things that are clearly fake or conspiracy theories? Do we, or do we give them space? I don't know. It's a, it's a very difficult uh, line to draw. Yeah. And how do you express perhaps multiple elements of your identity, right? I mean, when I post on LinkedIn or when I have a conversation, you know, I have, I'm expressing the views of, you know, my professional identity. So I talk about digital media and influencer marketing and technology and entrepreneurship. But, you know, what if I want to talk about strategy board games or real estate or some of the other things that are interests of mine? And I have friends and communities of which, you know, I'm involved, but those would be foreign, right, to this professional identity, perhaps. So you kind of have different spaces and different ways of expressing those elements of your identity online. Yeah, exactly. It's, uh, I mean, that's why I love being on multiple platforms and why I really have to guard myself from sitting on them all day. Because I'm the same way, like LinkedIn is my primary, I use it more than any other. But when I'm there, it's me spouting off about digital media almost exclusively, right? When I go on Twitter, it's a lot of like pictures of my kids and video game jokes. When I go on Instagram, it's almost exclusively pictures of my kids. Same for Facebook, because like, that's where I I don't try to grow a huge audience there, but I know my friends and family follow me on those platforms. When I go on TikTok, I'm usually just trying to make comedy videos, right? Like it's straight up, like set up punchline stuff. And I feel like a lot of people want to feed a lot of different parts of themselves. And it's really hard to do when you just have one identity the whole time. You know, Facebook, I might want to show those other sides of myself. I just don't because everything says Phil Rant on it. Sure. And, and not only are we seeing this clash or this collision of multiple identities online, but there's also this kind of separation between who you are, IRL, right, versus some of your online identities sometime. And, and I've been reading about how this is coming into conflict, you know, in a professional sense, or, you know, in, uh, if you're a student, right, there are some students uh, who are, you know, getting in trouble with their universities or being, being expelled and then filing lawsuits because, you know, some element of their online persona, if they're an influencer and, you know, they're espousing beliefs in this online context around this kind of separate identity that the school or the um, company didn't feel, that feels like does not uh, align with their values as an organization, these things are being put in conflict. So what degrees of freedom should people have between you know, their professional and their, their offline identity versus the way they present themselves online? Yeah, that's a tricky question. Because frankly, if I was going to hire somebody, and I found out they said racist stuff on Twitter, I probably wouldn't want to hire them, right? Like, it's, a, it's, it's tricky, because yes, people grow, and they evolve. And now people are joining Twitter when they're 13. And God knows, I don't want my thoughts when I was 13 to be public now that I'm 38, like I'd be mortified But also it's, you know, I think that we have to teach media literacy and social media literacy at a very young age because these things are forever. And if you're a punk when you're 13, that's going to trail you when you're 25. You can never permanently delete something once it's online. It's always there, right? So like I, when it comes to the, the overall umbrella concept of cancel culture, like it's a very, very hard topic because at one point it's like, People are allowed to dislike anyone for whatever they want. And if somebody said something horrible on their Twitter account, you're like, I'm not going to follow them anymore. And then they post that on Twitter. I'm not going to follow them anymore. Is that cancel culture? Is that somebody stating a very specific opinion about how egregious they thought somebody was in the past and therefore shouldn't be followed? You know, at what point is it news? And at what point is it 
trying to take away someone's career and an aggregate, it becomes taking away someone's career. But on a personal level, who's to say that someone can't say this person was racist or sexist or homophobic in the past. And I'm just pointing that out, that that's the reason why I'm not following them anymore. Right. So it's something that, again, we have to reckon with because we can't control it. Right. Cancel culture is here to stay because there's no legislating around that. So people just have to stop uh, posting things online they're going to regret. And that's going to be a tough one. Yeah. So actually, one of the things I'm, I'm fascinated to ask you about is in, in the five years since our first conversation, you've become a parent, right? You have two yeah. young kids now. So how do you think about raising your children in an era in which they're absolutely going to grow up on social media? How do you think about you know, teaching them media literacy from a young age? Yeah, I keep them away from screens as much as possible because I'm a huge hypocrite, first of all, because I'm on screens all day, every day. But also it's, you know, you try to, especially in this day and age, have try to give kids real life experiences because you know they're going to end up in screen zone eventually. Like the data doesn't lie. They're going to be on screens eight hours a day by the time they're 23. So for now, let's go to the zoo every once in a while, right? Let's see real animals. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm going to not post, I'm not going to let them create a YouTube or a TikTok or anything until they're old enough to be able to handle it. I'm going to teach them from a very young age about comments and why people say hurtful things and that they don't mean it. And a lot of people like they take joy in trying to rile people up and, you know, especially having a daughter, like I've seen the kind of comment threads, people are lining up to call everybody on the internet, ugly and stupid and not funny if they're female creators. And you have to teach somebody that like, Hey, this is what the internet is. When you create pieces of content, this is kind of some of the stuff that comes back and it's not a personal reflection of you. It's about them and their issues. And it's hard. Like there's a reason why depression rates go up as social media usage goes up. It's because there's a lot of mean things on the internet. And there's a lot of kind of personal competition between you and your friends when you see somebody getting more likes than you. So all of these things have to be baked into the conversation very, very young because it's all part of this media literacy that's so missing in our culture right now. What are you most excited about for the world that they're going to grow, grow up in that you know we didn't have when we were kids? A couple things. So one is just the ability to be worldly, right? If you were to say to 10-year-old Phil, hey, what are people thinking in India right now? I'd have zero outlet for that, right? I'd have to like find a phone book and call long distance to India and be like, hey, what are you thinking over there, right? Nowadays, there's there's incredible empathy builders and news travels fast and you're able to find out things about other cultures and different ways of life. And I feel like that's going to bring apart a new kind of global unity that hands across America simply couldn't do because of the barriers of information. So I'm really excited about that. I love the amount of kind of charity and how cool charity has become. And I think it's partially like things become cool when they become easy, but I'm glad they became easy, right? Like being able to donate your birthday on Facebook to a cause like there was no way to do that before without like having an email list or a letter writing campaign trying to raise money for something. Or like when I was a kid raising money for Little League and I had to go door to door selling chocolate bars. Like now you can just go on a GoFundMe and you can go raise money for Myanmar or whatever you want to do, which is pretty amazing. And then ultimately, I'm really excited for the idea of my, you know, my wife is a writer. I was a comedian for many years. We think our kids are probably going to be creatives. I think it's going to happen no matter what. And the idea that they're going to be able to express themselves creatively in a world with less gatekeepers than my wife or I hit, right? Like I was very early in internet. 
So I was still doing the stage shows and inviting agents out to things and going to film festivals when I was in college. Like you don't have to do that anymore. You can just go create and find your audience, which is awesome. Yeah. And the flip side of that coin, what are the things that you're most worried about? What are the things that keep you up at night about our digital age? Cyberbullying is the one that keeps me up the most. Like we, we, we are not tough as people and we shouldn't be right. Like part of being vulnerable is also being empathic. And part of being empathic is feeling things deeply. And when you're uh, a going through puberty and people call you an idiot online or a bunch of people, you know, say, I hate you. I don't like you. That sinks in deep. And it's, it happens to everyone now. Like everyone I know with teenagers, nobody's immune from it, right? Even the popular kids are getting it because it's like, it's so easy now to bully people. Like when I was a kid, you'd get, be worried about getting punched in the face and you'd have to be brave enough to go, well, not brave, that's the wrong word, but you'd have to like go up to someone's face if you were going to call them a name. Or if you were doing whisper campaigns behind their back, you knew that it was probably going to get back to them and they were going to confront you. Now you can just sit on Instagram all day and say, you're an idiot, you're an idiot, you're an idiot. So I worry about what's happening to the self-esteem of entire generations and how they define worth. And that really freaks me out. Like, is, is social currency going to be the only designation of worth to Gen Z and Gen Alpha? I sure hope not, but it certainly feels like it. Like I have 5,000 Instagram followers, therefore I am better than someone with 1,000. What a terrible world that would make. And it plays into so many aspects of your life now, right? Yeah. So, you know, the people that you meet and not just, you know, your friendships as a, as a kid and a student growing up, but also maybe the people that you date, right? They look at your yeah. social media as a way to evaluate you. As we've talked about your professional life, jobs will often do a Google search and find your social profiles as a way to kind of dig beneath the surface. So yeah. you are evaluated to a large extent based on these public vanity metrics. Yeah, it's absolutely true. And frankly, th this is the part that I really struggle with. You kind of should be right. Because like, if you're trying to do research on something or someone that's an excellent public source of data for being able to find out the, what somebody's really like. Now it goes back to the problem of people change and people evolve and, I like, I don't have a single person in my life. I've known more than 10 years. That's exactly the same as they were 10 years ago. So is it fair to evaluate them based on something they said six years ago? I don't know. Um, but you know, it's now that there's going to be a paper trail for people starting at the age of 13 or sometimes younger all the time. And yeah. it's going to be part of the future. It's really scary. That's why I got to keep my kids away from social media for a while, even though I work in the industry, for it's not sure. good for them. Have you seen the new HBO documentary, Fake Famous? I have not, no, yeah. but I've been recommended it. So Yeah, I, I just out. watched it last night. And uh, I actually watched it with my parents because my mom is like fascinated by nice. <laughs> She's not on social media at all, which is yeah. funny because most people her age group, like all of her friends are on Facebook. And right. my mom could just care less, right? She doesn't want anything Good to do with it. for her. That's she, awesome. Yeah, she's cute. Like she's, she's like, I want to go on LinkedIn. How do I just read your stuff? Like, how do I follow you and make sure I get posted? Like nothing <laughs> I like else. That. I don't want anything else to do with it. But um, it's funny. So we watched this together and she, I mean, it just blew her mind that they're like, this is how influencers work and that you could, the documentary premise is that they take three people who all want to be famous, right? And so, you know, the definition of that in, in an internet context is how do we get you a lot of social followers, primarily on Instagram, uh, which they do through various means. They fake all these photo shoots. They, uh, you know, 
uh, do collaborations with influencers in some cases, and then they buy followers, right? They're just right. bots, right? They, they buy followers and fake engagement. And, and you know, I think the documentary, you know, I, I, I struggle to recommend it because in some cases, I, there were parts of it that I didn't think really captured the whole aspect of our business, right? And yeah. Like it was really just focused on Instagram, um, which is just a very thin sliver. And the idea of an influencer as like a fashion beauty vlogger type, which, right. you know, doesn't capture the comedians and the artists and, you know, the really fascinating people who have found success on these platforms that otherwise would not have because of gatekeepers. You yeah. know, I think it was missing uh, an informed discussion about all the elements that, that happen in our space. But um, it was interesting to see, you know, my mom's reaction to it versus my reaction of like, this is the world in which we live now. Right. And I haven't seen it, but I assume that their point is that fame begets fame, right? Like if you have that big number, then you start to get real fans. Like yeah. I, I'm verified on Twitter. I did it through the executive track because there was a couple articles that I was in. So I'm by no means famous. I just got the verification check mark. And immediately I started getting more followers and more engagement. And I think it's because when you have that, people go, oh, he's somebody. And therefore I'm going to do it, right? Like the, the perception of being somebody elevates you. And even if that's fake or it's just a vanity metric, you know, that's the world we live in now. And frankly, I think that's really sad and it shouldn't be, but you know, it is, you know. Yeah. Partially because these things are happening so quickly that we as a society haven't developed the mechanisms to cope, right? We haven't, right. you know, defined the political, you know, tech uh, legislation and regulation frameworks. We haven't figured out, you know, the the way that this fits into our society from a speech, from an identity standpoint, as we've talked about, and right. then the ways that we interact with people online and offline. There's so much of this that we're just, we're learning as we go along. And so there's some amazing things that happen as a result of social media. And there's some terrible things as we've seen oh, yeah. from recent events. And there's, still... you, you kind of start everything in animal brain, right? Whenever a new thing comes, you're an animal brain, which is like what, when, what we were as cave people, right? So like uh, proximity to power, it becomes a survival thing and uh, making sure that people like you because that's a survival thing. And, you know, uh, if other people are getting something, feeling jealousy and wanting to have that too, the internet is still an animal brain. It's only been around for what? The internet has only been mass market for 30 years and social media has only been mass market for less than 15. So like, we're still in that. I want proximity to power. I want what they have world. The only way to get through that is education and evolving. And I think that frankly, even my generation, like the, I'm at the eldest side of millennials. It's too late for us. I don't think that we can fully evolve as a generation in order to be the, okay. Like it's gotta be the upcoming generations and we just have to die off and then hope the next generation's smarter than us. And there are so many generational divides, right? But you know, the generation before us grew up on TV, we grew right. up on the internet, but this new generation grew up on social media. And those, yeah. those kind of differences are stark, right? We're trying oh, yeah. to bridge the gap, but there are some significant changes. One of the things I think a lot about is we don't have these same shared experiences so much. Um, and, and by that, I mean, you know, we don't all watch the same movie anymore. We don't watch the same, you know, hit television series. There are exceptions to that. There's Breaking right. Bad and Game of Thrones. And, you know, there's some of these moments that are like true cultural phenomenons. Yeah. But we don't, you know, like, do people really go to the theater anymore? Or like, 
right. read the same books because people's interests are so disparate. And there's so much more entertainment and content and consumption now, which in many respects is a good thing, right? Like you and I oh, yeah. probably have a lot of things that we overlap on, right? Like the, the Venn diagram of Phil and James, there's probably a lot of rich things that we could discuss. Sure. But I'm sure there are things that I'm really into that you could care less about and vice versa. So oh, absolutely. Yeah, that's kind of being reflected now through through online media. Yeah, no, it's weird. A lot of people are very judgmental of, let's say, people over 50, the OK Boomer set, because they believe everything they see is a headline on Facebook and they're willing to share it to reaffirm their beliefs. But you have to realize this is a generation that grew up where all news was vetted and sourced. And then all of a sudden, when they were more than halfway through their lives, there was this idea of like, anyone can be in a news reporter now. And there's now hyper-partisan media where there wasn't before. And all of a sudden, they they're have to train themselves to doubt what they see as a legit news headline. It looks like a legit news headline. So it's like, can I overly blame this whole set of people for spreading conspiracy theories and lies and believing conspiracy theories and lies? A little bit. But also, it's like, this is something that they have to retrain themselves, like quitting smoking. And how do you get a whole generation to quit smoking when they've been smoking their whole lives, you know? Yeah, it's hard. And, and I guess I wrestle with this notion of like all the things, when you get together with your friends, I imagine the, the things that people talk about are, you know, what, what's the latest show you're watching on Netflix or Amazon yeah. or Hulu or whatever, or what's, you know, what podcasts are you listening to? What's the funniest TikTok video you've seen? Which mm -hmm. is awesome. I love and appreciate all of those things as well. And it's not to differentiate between highbrow and lowbrow. I think there are rich cultural experiences on all these formats. You can, you can find the most intellectual, educational, engaging content on YouTube, just as much as you can find outrageous conspiracy theories and, right. you know, vapid uh, content that, that, you know, holds little value. But I guess the point of it is, you know, are we losing a sense of culture? Because in some respects, I feel closer to people in other parts of the world than I probably ever could have, right? I meet mm -hmm. people, especially through work. I have friends now all over the world, which is amazing. And they, you know, they're turned into American politics because it's at the forefront of journalism and social media. Sure. And so we have these more global collective shared experiences. Um, but at the same time, I worry that, you know, languages are deteriorating because so much stuff is focused on primary languages like English, Spanish, Chinese, right? I, I feel like cultural uh, experiences are not maintained so much anymore because the internet culture has become so much of a dominant culture worldwide. Do you wrestle right. with that? Yeah, I do. I, well, I feel like everything's going in two directions. We're, we're living in a world more and more of extremes. And not just politically, but also there's going to be extremes in every market and you've got to look out for them, right? I like to say it's like the Mar Marvel movie versus YouTube, right? The kind of middle class of everything is going away. Because if you're able to afford something like Marvel movies, you can break through the noise, but you have to do it by brute force. You need $200 million marketing campaigns. Or like you can launch a platform now, but it's way harder to do from your college dorm room than it was 15 years ago. You need to have a billion dollar marketing campaign. You need to be like best fiends. You need to spend hundreds of millions or billions of dollars or coin master in order to get your, your thing in the top 10 of the app store, right? Or there's this really scrappy culture class, which is based on these kind of small micro groups, right? Where it's like, now there's a place for Americans to become K-pop stands where there wasn't before. And there's a way to like, just deeply, deeply love this one cartoon on this one thing, right? So it's like, 
there's always going to be this this mass market and then this rebellion and there's going to be that in all forms like i don't know if you've been seeing watching the stock market since robin hood blew up but now there's like everybody goes oh my god look at the tesla stocks oh my god look at facebook oh my god look at twitter they're crushing it and it's like of course they are there there's are more millions money in the system of now. people yeah there's yeah. millions of people who join and what do they see on the front page of robin hood Tesla, Facebook, Google, right? Like they're not pushing their small stocks. They're just putting the front ones up because people want to play the game. So it is going back to extremes, right? There's going to be the people who are like, I buy the penny stocks and I'm the day traders and I'm the ones that know how to play that game. And then there's the people who are going to be the casual browsers who are going to inflate the prices of these top stocks because technology allowed the barriers to entry to be non-existent. Yeah, which, you know, personally, I'm happy about, right? Let yeah. my passive ETFs just continue to grow as more money comes into the system. You bet. But the horrifying thing about it is highlighted by the stonks phenomenon sure. is that Robinhood and others are pushing the main brands, right? And, yep. you know, who, who knows? Maybe you'll do very well investing in Tesla and, you know, all these kind of high growth, big name startups. Um, the challenge is you could also lose your shirt, right? Like yep. th there's a lot of risk inherent in that and they're not pushing, you know, portfolio or basket um, uh, stocks. They're not pushing, uh, they're not pushing small cap. They're not pushing right. international foreign markets. So, yeah. you know, for the, all these people who are sitting at home who don't have a financial education and, oh, hey, maybe I just got a stimulus check. Like, you right. know, there's, there's money to invest. Um, it's, it's horrifying because just like we don't have digital and, and social media education, we don't have financial literacy in this country. Right, which that's really scary. And part of that, I, not, not to put on my tinfoil hat, but I'm going to wear it just for a second. It's important to the wealthy and the powerful for other people to not know what to do, right? Like it's easier for you to evade your taxes if other people are paying their taxes or else it becomes a disaster and they have to legislate around it and then they clamp down, right? So it's the, the, the ruling classes need everyone to be dumb. And the internet's starting to make people smart. Now, the problem with that is, like you said, Tesla, Google, Facebook, the stock market is no longer based on the actual value in, value out of a company, right? It's not about the earnings calls anymore. It's all about hype, right? Elon Musk is funny on Twitter and he posts great memes. I'm going to buy into Tesla because I love Elon Musk, right? Like the, that kind of thinking is making the stock market into the crypto market. And when everybody went, oh my God, look at what happened with GameStop and AMC and all of these, like people are market manipulating. It's like, guess what? The market's always been market manipulating. It just hasn't been in Reddit threads. It's been in the front pages of newspapers. So they're, they're kind of like showing this flaw that we've had for a long time in the system that only the rich and powerful have been able to benefit from. And now everyone's freaked out because anyone can benefit from it, right? So, But I have to believe that this is short term, right? That the market has to naturally correct itself, that the hype machine can't keep going forever. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, the, the fact that Tesla is worth as much as it is, I can't. I mean, I, I am not, I have to always put the addendum before, right? Like, I am not telling you what to do with your money, do what you want. I'm not a public yeah. stock, right? But like, the fact that they're selling so few cars relative to the competitive set and they're valued at so much more as everybody's buying Tesla out there, I'm buying Toyota, right? Because like, they're also making batteries. They're also doing a great job and they're selling a hell of a lot more cars than Tesla. So that electric uh, Mercedes looks pretty yeah, sweet. Totally. It's like, and if you look at just kind of raw data, which I know you and I are both kind of raw data people, 
you make really smart choices and you're a little bit more risk averse, but I agree. I have a lot of friends who have tens of thousands of dollars in Tesla where tens of thousands of dollars are very meaningful to them. And I'm like, hey, be, be careful out there because like, if you just look at the earnings data and everything. Yes, they could break through. Yes, everyone could have a Tesla battery in their home to, for power outages 10 years from now. Perhaps, maybe. But what I do know is they're not selling nearly as many cars and they're not on a trajectory to sell nearly as many cars as most of their competitive set. So be careful. Yeah. Well, I'm tempted to ask, but let's, we'll keep it short, right? I, yeah. There's this thought that occurs to me that, you know, people love Elon Musk because he is an entrepreneurship influencer, right? And yeah. it's cool. And, you know, he's done all these things. And look, Elon Musk is a big thinker. He's had incredible success for his, year, his career from PayPal to, you know, Tesla, what he's doing with SpaceX, et cetera. But now it seems like there are others who want to kind of fit into that mold, like um, a Jack Dorsey with, yeah. with Twitter. And people are kind of saying, well, hey, you're not keeping your eye on the ball, um, and, and there's kind of this investor, uh, <laughs> momentum building to potentially remove him. Uh, and yeah. then of course, now we see Jeff Bezos stepping down as CEO of Amazon and, and it was like huge news. And it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's kind of like when I read that, I was like, okay, this is not surprising. Um, right. on, on the one hand, he spent 23 years building this company. He's had incredible success. And, and obviously kind of the next move is to be a chairman and focus on the things that like he really is interested in. Right. Um, and then part of it too is maybe like he sees what Elon's doing and he wants to, you know, compete against him in the space race. And he's a little perhaps upset that sure. you know, he's not the richest man in the world anymore. But, you know, yeah. it's like, are we seeing this backlash against these massive tech luminaries uh, trying to do so many things uh, you know, invest in in the space race, run a successful company, be this influential persona, mm -hmm. testifying before you know Congress. It's just yeah. like that they're constantly in the limelight. They've become elevated to this next level of celebrity. Right. People, people more than ever, and I think this is going to continue moving faster and faster. Care what the brands that they buy into stand for, whether it's the stock market or the grocery store. You're now looking at something like. People I know in Los Angeles will not go to Chick-fil-A because of their stance historically on gay marriage, right? They won't do it. And yes, Chick-fil-A is still incredibly, incredibly successful, but you're more and more starting to see, like we, as we say in digital that I'm sure that you've heard a million times is that things are whispers before they become screams. Like you, you can see where market trends are going and more and more is it like, where do you stand on Black Lives Matter, Toyota, McDonald's, right? Like, People want to know this stuff and that's causing this rock star CEO thing because Facebook isn't Facebook. Facebook is Mark Zuckerberg and Mark Zuckerberg has to be accountable for Facebook. So it's like, if Facebook does something wrong, he's the villain that's ruining everything. Even though there's 40,000 employees there and he doesn't have time to worry about it, right? Like <laughs> there's probably a lot of terrible things happening at Facebook that, that he does not cross his desk that he's going to take the blame for, right? But that's part of it, right? Like you, you care about what your company's value that you buy into. And that's going to cause more and more of these rock star CEOs because you need a figurehead at the top of it being like, I am the public persona of this company and I care about this and this and this and I don't care about this and this and this. So if you join me, buy my soda brand, right? Like it sounds ridiculous, but it's really the way that free information causes us to think about brands. It is strange how much that has changed, right? Because when I was young or our parents' generation, they never would have thought, you know, what does this leader 
stand for? Yeah. What is this brand identity? It's, you know, I like this product. You know, this is what the utility of the product, right? And it kind of ended there, but now you're right. It's all about how is it sourced? How is it manufactured? What are their policies? What are their political leanings? What are their, um, uh, you know, social uh, justice ideologies? Right. And, and part of that is really a healthy thing, right? We, we look at the systemic inequities in our system and uh, a lot of that is driven by how much power corporations have, right? That right. a lot of this has kind of left the, political domain and is, is now fought in the corporate domain. Um, yeah. And then, and part of it too is, you know, one way to change behavior is through economics, right? So mm -hmm. can you protest? Can you boycott this? Can you uh, organize people through the power of online forums to then uh, change behavior of these corporations or empower a new wave of those that, that do align with your values? So yeah. I mean, there are some good things that come out of that. Well, there's also, I, I, uh, had some friends back in Michigan who are right-leaning, who we were having a very interesting conversation about why so many brands choose to be more left-leaning, right? When you see just like what they're doing in their commercials and, you know, a lot of them are, are quick to jump on left-leaning bandwagons before right-leaning bandwagons. And if you look at where spending power exists, understanding that corporations are heavily driven by financial incentives, Spending power has a tendency to be over-indexed in blue areas, right? Big cities where major population centers are. So if you assume that a lot of companies are driven by the ability to make more money, then it behooves them to have more left-leaning politics, right? And if that's ever to change, then this where the power dynamics are in terms of financial incentives need to change. So it's really interesting the way that all this is going down, but over the next 10, 20, 30 years, you're going to see it accelerate even more to the point where more brands are going to get canceled on Twitter every day. What is coming next? Do you have any predictions or things that you're excited about that you're following closely at the moment? Oh God, so much. Um, yeah. Where do I start? I mean, naturally at wormhole, I would, uh, I would, I, I live and breathe the metaverse every day, whether there there's kind of, some trends that are inevitabilities and some trends that you kind of hope will happen, right? Like VR. There's, there's a lot of people who are like, look, the sales are going up, the sales, but it's not an inevitability, right? We can completely miss everybody sitting at home and having a VR headset over their head. Like it, we wouldn't, it's not an inevitability. Likewise, the idea that somebody's social media life is going to be in a metaverse is not something that's 100% assured. But what I do feel is 100% assured is a more and more AR future. And that's when you kind of start to combine the, meta, the best parts of the metaverse and the best parts of the real world, which is I put on a pair of glasses and I'm able to get additional information about things that are around me and I can more easily combine my digital life and my physical life. That I do feel is fully an inevitability. Um, so excited for that. Keep my eyes out on the Apple glasses that are now rumored to be coming out at $3,000 price point. And of course, there's a lot of other people announcing glasses that look bulky and terrible, but they'll get better. Um, I'm really excited about more kind of talk around creator monetization as part of platforms core strategies. We've been saying since God, since the YouTube partner program launched 2008, 2009, like, oh, there it is. Now you're going to start getting paid for everything you do. And it just didn't come true, right? Instagram wasn't paying. TikTok wasn't, no one was paying. But I feel like now the pressure because of this uh, user pay generation that's really come up in the past year where 
you know, live platforms that depend on paid subscriptions and donations really started blowing up and uh, Patreon became a $1.2 billion company and OnlyFans became a huge, huge deal in the past year. Now that they've got this pressure to say, oh no, they're spending more and more time in these like paid areas. How am I going to keep them on Snapchat? How am I going to keep them on TikTok? And it's pressuring people to pay more, which I think is a really good thing, right? It's going to be a great equalizer to these platforms. Yeah, I think you're right. The platforms didn't have to pay before, right? They could right. skate by on, hey, we're the cool, hot new platform. We built a big audience and people figure out creative ways to monetize, whether it's through branded sponsorships or you know, uh, pushing audience to other places where they can then monetize. But I think to stay competitive as the landscape continues to fragment and there's yeah. increased competition, you have to have some sort of innate creator monetization as part of your strategy now. Yeah. And I'm really excited about creators as entrepreneurs too. And I know that we share that. It's kind of like been happening in little bits. Like if you're Michelle Fon, of course, you've got like Ipsy, you've got all these big things. And a couple of creators have been kind of able to launch that into the stratosphere, like Jeffree Star and Shane Dawson, a few others. But now it's starting to become more and more reasonable through things like blockchain and the rise of nfts and print on demand and dropship companies and like the ability to go do a license with a liquor brand to have your own liquor because to them selling a thousand units on a limited supply suddenly becomes worth it like we're gonna see more and more people doing really interesting branded plays based on their influence and trying to build something bigger than themselves and you don't need to be puff daddy to do it anymore right you don't need to have the money of a Ciroc there's a lot of these companies that are allowing people to do it when you've got just a nice, strong few thousand diehard fan fan base. Yeah. I'm wondering if you think that everyone ultimately will have to become a creator, right? I, I think about this as we move, as the changing nature of work evolves, as, as we move more and more towards a gig economy, now we have the tools where it's become so simple for everyone to be a creator, but increasingly, you know, as a working professional, kind of you are the product. So I'm right. wondering if if it just forces you know uh, everyone to feel like they need to be a creator at, at some point. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, you, it's already kind of happened, right? Like when I'm going to be on a panel with someone and I go to LinkedIn and they don't have a LinkedIn account, I'm like, what? Who is this person? Like, is this person invisible? Uh, but it's it's true, right? Like if you're not on platforms or at least showing up, then you're a weirdo. It's just strange. Um, and I know that there's a lot of industries where that's not true. Like if you're a trucker, you probably don't need to have a LinkedIn profile or a Facebook profile, but more and more as there's kind of these like economies of thought and these very competitive field, like every field's becoming more and more competitive. Everyone's got to at least start to learn the rules of social media and how to do it responsibly. Like I, I really struggled, especially when I was early in social media of like, how do I, have times where I respond back to tweets and not feel the need as soon as I get a ding that somebody's replied to a tweet to jump right on and do it. Like it's not efficient. And if you can learn how to balance that and also balance your work and also leave a lot of time for your family and personal fulfillment, that's the win. It's just a really difficult balance. So yeah, everyone's already kind of a creator. It's too late. Yeah, it's true. Phil, uh, do you have any unusual talents? What are, what's something that, you know, your world class at that people might have no idea? Oh my God. Uh, Tony Hawk pro skater four, uh, me and my roommate, when that movie or when that game came out, we went online and we were pretty top of the top. If there was an esport for it at that time, I think that we probably would have fared very well. 
But specifically um, number four, huh? We were so broke at that time <laughs> that like, you know, like when I moved to Los Angeles, I had no money. So like I was sharing a bedroom with another person. We were like in the cheapest place we could find. And so like we had one video game for the Wii or was it the GameCube? I forget, but it was that. So we would come home from work every day. We didn't have cable, couldn't afford cable. So we would just play that one game for hours and hours and hours. Um, and so yeah, that that's a weird talent. You know, I've got a weird talent in terms of like, and this kind of feeds into my professional life too, but uh, finding a, a thing and breaking down the components to be successful in that thing and then experimenting around it. Like for example, when uh, me and the team at full screen were going to go see the prices right as a team outing, we went on all the forums, found out how they selected people, studied the games, quizzed each other on the games. And then I got up on stage and I, I ended up winning the showcase showdown. And part of that is I read forums where it's like, when you're in line, there's producers watching you. So be excited, clap your hands. When they like do the three second interview with you, make sure you're sounding like you're on the show, like yell at them, be super excited. And like, it all worked out. So uh, I feel like that's a kind of weird talent. I'm kind of not even a talent, weird obsession, maybe. I also that's think great. that I've got a weird talent for being a dad. Like, I think that I meant to be a stay at home dad. And maybe if I have a huge exit, I hope to do that for a few years. Like I just, it clicked with me and it made me go like, oh man, I used to think I was a workaholic, but maybe I'm just like a projectaholic and kids are the ultimate project in a way. Now you're a dataholic. So I'm a dataholic. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, uh, if something just clicks and it, it feels like, yeah, it was a natural fit. That's amazing. Yeah. And the, the idea, I think that my improv comedy background also feeds well into being a parent. Cause it's a lot of like trying to improv is very much about trying to get back in that kid brain of like a sense of play. And now I've got kids who are literally in that brain with a sense of play. And I'm like, Oh, improv scene partner. There we go. If you're a fairy princess, I totally get where I stand on that. Right. And then That's I am awesome. the loyal servant. Very good. Uh, if you were starting a business today, knowing everything, you know, and having, you know, been through, uh, you know, this, really impressive career in the digital media space, what would you do? Uh, I think, I mean, wormhole aside, right? Because that's very like product build, deep tech kind of stuff. Uh, I think that I would double back on hands-on creator services. I feel like everybody's trying to build towards the platform side, but MCNs kind of disappeared, or at least in North America, or they're not servicing in the way they were before. And management companies and agencies still aren't doing it right. A lot of them are still whale hunting. And I feel like when it comes to kind of like what Jelly Smack's doing, where it's just very kind of hands-on, on-platform growth and introduction and introdu introducing new platforms and helping guide careers in that direction, I think there's still a huge gap there. Um, so I, I, I would probably look at something like that, or I would just go for another kind of big swing on the future. AR, I still find incredibly fascinating. I think there's a lot of ground there. And how brands can play along in digital ways and new ways. I love blockchain. I'm addicted to blockchain and NFTs and what's the security and what's not like crypto markets are cool. I don't know. I've got a lot of passions. Yeah, there's so many ways to go with it. And when you talk about, you know, getting back to creative services and talent businesses, it feels yeah. like there is this whole new wave of, of new talent businesses, whether it's, you know, Night Media or yeah. Dan Reza and Michael getting the band back together with yeah, Underscore. For underscore yeah. yeah, there's a lot of kind of cool new approaches to it and, and kind of people taking another run at it. 
having learned so much from the first go around and then how much the landscape has changed right. in the past five, six And even years. if you look at things like FaZe Clan and Talon X, where the whole idea is like building a brand around a management mm-hmm. arm, like that's fascinating to me. I think that most talent companies would be, are, are going to really struggle unless they're able to be known as something in the market. And, you know, there's like the underscores and the night medias of the world, like, of course, I wish them well, but whenever they ask me for advice, that's always the advice I give them is like, make sure you mean something to people. Because if you're just like, I've been in management for a lot of years, that's not enough anymore. Yeah, you really have to have a brand and kind of build that lifestyle, that identity and something yeah. that creators can feel a part of, for sure. Right, that's where like, if you say what's doing better, Loaded or Phase Clan, right? Loaded has all of the top streamers or a lot of the top streamers. Mm-hmm. But FaZe Clan has such a strong brand that if you were to say, Phil, who do you, who would you invest in right now? Love the Loaded guys, love the FaZe guys. I'd invest in FaZe because Loaded became known as the company that has Ninja. Now they don't have Ninja anymore. It's over at CAA. And it's like, yeah. they, they didn't do a lot of like kind of public facing stuff for themselves. Yeah. Phil, what do you want your ultimate impact or legacy to be? I want my ultimate legacy to be as somebody who empowered the uh, democratization of media, that generation, right? Like if I'm ever written about in a book, I want it to be like, there was this wave of, there was all of these middlemen and middle women in entertainment. And then there was a wave where people started creating it and having a direct connection with their audience And there needed to be people in there to help build the platforms and build the programs and guide that generation. And I just want to be as effective as possible in making that a reality. Like with success, I hope that I'm someone like me isn't needed in the future, right? That everything is just so intuitive that someone can just create and then have their audience. And there's no, there's no need for anybody in between. We're just not there yet. So someone like me has to exist. Yeah. At that point, I hope to do well enough that I can retire. <laughs> there we go. But you're right. We're all pushing it along. I think we all believe in this idea of the passion economy and the creator economy. And that's the most incredible thing. That's why we wake up every morning and, and do what we do is it's, it's incredible to see people be able to make a living doing what they love. Yeah, exactly. And frankly, when I look at, will someday we get so good at this that I won't have a job? I think that what I would probably end up doing is being the chief of staff of a Mr. Beast type person, right? Where it's like someone who needs to have 60 employees under them and like, they're going to need a COO and that's where I can step in. That's right. So Phil, where can people find out more about you and more about everything you're up to at Wormhole Labs? Yeah. So wormholelabs.com is where you can see more on Wormhole Labs. Um, If you want to hear more about me, I'm at Phil Ranta on every social media, but, uh, best to find me on LinkedIn and Twitter. That's where I post the most. If you go on Instagram, it'll probably just be a bunch of pictures of my kids who are adorable. And then also uh, find me on Clubhouse. I'm starting to use it more and more. And uh, I'm also at Phil Ranta there. And it's just a really awesome way to get to know thought leaders in the digital industry, especially so check it out. Yeah, I'm really enjoying it. So I'm yeah. gonna I'm gonna uh, poke you right now and say we should do a session together on Clubhouse. Yeah, it'd be a lot of fun. That. So I've, we'll plug with, that. I've got a two month old right now, so I've been terrible because like I've been on Clubhouse since July. I was part of one of the early betas, and I was using it all the time back then, and just constantly on stages. And then as soon as it started like being an open beta and everyone was on it, then immediately I had a child. And now I can't be on in a room for more than five minutes because the baby starts crying. So, and it's changed a lot, even in those yeah. six months. I mean, it's transformed. So it's exciting yeah. to be in it at this stage. There's a lot happening. 
But yeah. um, follow follow me and Phil on LinkedIn for sometime we'll do a clubhouse together and we'll we can ask you know everyone else can ask us questions and give you a chance to ask you more questions. I love that. Yeah, time, time to bring this podcast onto a uh, onto a clubhouse room. That's I right, that. into a new medium for sure. Yep. Well, my friend, thank you so much. It's always so fun to just kind of kick it with you and talk about everything happening in this crazy world of digital media. So really appreciate your time. It's been fun to have you back for round two and hope we get to do it again soon. Yeah, thanks for having me. This was fun. Thanks for tuning in. I'm James Creech, and this has been another edition of All Things Video. If you like what you hear, we hope you'll share and subscribe for new episodes. See you next time.